0: I'm Jonathan Polevsky, and it's my pleasure to interview Manuel Baruego for these podcasts. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about you as teacher and your relationships with your teachers. Yeah. Uh, Because when you were making recordings for Vox, how old were you when you did uh, all those recordings for Vox?
1: I think the first one... Was in must have been what, 76, 77. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You're gonna tell me how old you were in 76 or uh, uh four years old, okay. Um, <laughs> my, my, no, 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 I think
1: it must have been 23.
0: Okay, so my question is this you were a performer and a recording soloist before you were a teacher, correct? And then you became a teacher,
1: or do I have this wrong? Actually, yeah, you do mm-hmm. a little bit. Because, I mean, I I, uh, I, I was at Peabody, and I was offered to to teach at the Manhattan School of Music before I graduated here. So I went from here wow. to to New York, and I think I may have been teaching already. I'm not really sure. But if I was teaching, it would have been for a short period of time anyway.
0: And then you went on tour and uh, did yeah, uh, everything. So let's talk about the relationships with your teachers, yeah. Aaron Shearer, yeah. and who else?
1: The teachers that I had in, in Cuba, I mean, his name was Manuel Push was the main mm-hmm. one that I have.
0: And that was till age what?
1: Till I came to the U.S. when I was 14.
0: 14. And uh, you started when? How How young? Eight. Eight.
1: And uh, and here I started with Juan Mercadal. We were in Miami for less than a year, and I was studying with him. And then we moved to, to New York, New Jersey area, and I started with another Cuban, with Rey de la Torre. I mean, mm-hmm. But I don't remember. I, have, I must have had very few lessons with him. Because then he moved to California, and, and then that was it, and I, and I didn't have a teacher again until I went to, to Peabody with Aaron Sure.
0: So you basically studied on your own, more or less, from 14 to 18? True?
1: Uh, maybe more like 15 or 16, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Three years on your own. About- That's kind of fascinating, actually. And to <laughs> get into conservatory with... I, I mean, I would bet you there aren't too many people who get into conservatory having had no teacher in their last three
1: years before they apply. What did you play? What did you play for your first audition for Ensare? I don't remember exactly. I think it was a Ponces for Natalia Mariana. Mm-hmm. Maybe the chaconne. Maybe I'm not sure. I, don't, I, <laughs> I, honestly, I honestly don't remember. Actually, I have a funny story to tell you with, with the chaconne. I, I learned the chaconne. I think I finished memorizing the chaconne like a couple of days before I turned twelve. You know, keep in mind that if I if I played it, then doesn't mean that I played it well. Right. I just could go through it. But I had her, my, my idol when I was a kid was Brower, mm-hmm. you know. And I had heard somewhere that he had played the Chacon when he was twelve. So after Castro, you couldn't find music anywhere. I finally got a hold of the Chacon like some months before I turned twelve.
0: Now you couldn't find records. Oh no no no! There were no, no, no records available. No records. We'll come back but anyway, to that soon. Yeah.
1: With, with the Brower and the Chacon, I mean, I, I finally like a couple of days before I turned twelve. I, I remember. It's just like, it. damn, finally, I memorized it. And then, and then a while later, I learned that that Brower had not even started playing the guitar until he was like 15 or something. Ouch. But, <laughs> you know, this whole thing of immigrating to a new country is a difficult thing mm-hmm. in, in a lot of different ways. The, you know, the displacement, also being a kid, you knowing exactly what's going on and your unhappiness, and you know, some of the happiness that came with that. And what happened was that... Uh, let me digress a little bit. Today I had to write something for the Newark Star Ledger. That, that, that's okay. the newspaper in yes. New Jersey. They were asking me to write something. And I was remembering how uh, we moved to Newark, New Jersey. And for a while, I was I was totally isolated. There was nobody interested in the guitar or anything like that. And uh, and then one day, out of nowhere, I hear that the Chacon being played from downstairs. And I ran down there to see who it was. And it turns out that it was a... Uh, it was just a young man, a university student, that was listening to a recording of the jargon. And he actually later went on to become the critic for the Stan Ledger for his family. Mm. Anyway. But what happens, because I think because of the pressures of immigrating, I had a, um, call it a thing, <laughs> that with, um, I had a hard time talking about this. What happened was I stopped playing the guitar for a couple of years before I came to Peabody. And I just didn't play. In fact, I was playing a little bit of pop things, you know, but something happened where I, I told a certain person, look, if this is happening because of the guitar, I'm not playing the guitar anymore. So I, I did not play. I'm sorry to be so vague, but, mm-hmm, but you know, mm-hmm, I'm trying mm-hmm. not to, you know. Okay. And then when I came to audition at Peabody, I was very impressed that Shearer had Aaron Sher had asked to meet with me before the audition. turns so out that I think he did that with a lot of people. And after the audition, he's like, man, I mean, I mean we're going to find full scholarship for, for you. I, I mean, I want you to come here. And I told him, well, look, Mr. Sure, you know, I mean, I I haven't played the guitar for, you know, for at least a couple of years. I don't know what's going to happen, you know. And I came and, and I was not into it.
0: Mm-hmm. Did I, you apply anywhere else or only to Peabody?
1: I applied to uh, Boston Conservatory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't know what I was doing, by the way. And I, and I was going to uh, an arts uh, music uh, high school in Newark, New Jersey, mm-hmm. Arts High. And I was playing the French horn in, in the, uh, because I didn't do guitar then. So, oh. so I played the French horn in the school band. Mm-hmm. And, and then one day, you know, I mean, it's time to college. What am I going to do? So, well, the only thing that I know is a guitar. So let's go for that. and see what happens. And I went to the counselor office. And the first three catalogs that popped up that had a guitar department, we applied to those. And, and one was Boston Conservatory. The one was Manhattan School of Music in New York. And the other one was Peabody.
0: Where were your parents in all this?
1: Uh, not particularly involved with any of this, but but mm-hmm. because also, also don't forget, you know, they were trying to make their way to in new a new country. I mean, sure, you know, I mean, it was a strange situation uh, anyway. So even if if they wanted to, they, they probably couldn't have helped me. You know, when, it, something I think is interesting is, is that when you, you immigrate to a new country, you know, I mean, especially coming from a communist country, that was a totally different thing. And the the players involved, my family. I mean, you come into a situation. But well, you don't know the rules, how the game is played at all. It even happens today that I see, for example, students from, maybe from Europe or other places in the world, that want to come to at peabody and they see the tuition at thirty thousand, and they so forget it. Mm-hmm. But what they don't know is that a lot of people get help. Right. So anyway, I I pulled the three of them. I went to uh, I did the, the audition in in New York. I think at that time the tuition was like two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they offered me. I think it was like two hundred or something. You know. So forget it. I mean, I, I mean, we didn't have any money. And uh, I went to uh, New England, and they gave me be- between scholarship and work study. was a full amount. And then, in my ghetto mentality, I decided, well, you know, what even bother with Peabody's? The best known of the three schools, I'm not even going to go audition. Mm-hmm. And then I got a phone call from Shearer. Really? He got a call. And he said, well, you know I mean? Did I, he have a tape? How did he? Well... B- now, what apparently may have happened, and if my memory doesn't fail me, I think he may have told me something that he was impressed with the letters of recommendation.
0: Uh-huh. Okay.
1: And, uh, which I don't know what they said. I have no idea.
0: It's in a file somewhere.
1: There, do you think? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: I should check that out.
0: You could check that out.
1: So I, I came my first year, and I had told him that, you know, I had not played, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know if I will get back into it or not. I think his response to that was to try to see me like twice a week for lessons. He, he, I think he was so excited about working with a young, talented player and, and showing me everything, that he, all his theories and everything he wanted to do with the guitar. But I just couldn't care less at the time. Mm-hmm. You know? Mind you, there's a side of me that was still listening. But I, I mean, I, I wasn't about to go home and practice. You know. So I practiced a half hour or so before the lesson. That kept intensifying kept intensifying. He kept telling me this. He was telling me that all, all I care about was partying, you know, that you know that, that I was this. And when I began to practice, I did not do some of the things that he, he wanted me to do. Unfortunately, that, that may have created—no, I'm being very diplomatic. It created a problem for him because here was somebody who was not doing the things exactly what he said. But who could play the guitar?
0: So you had a bad year there and sure your first year, yeah, where you basically weren't interested in practicing. Right. And, and your lessons?
1: me consisted in basically insulting me.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure that, that went over well. What happened the second year?
1: I think she saw potential in me. And I'm going to guess. I don't have to guess. I know he was excited, but some of the things that he told me, I, th- I think he believed in me. And uh he had specific ways in which he wanted to teach things. And I was not into it. And I had a huge ego to go along with it. And at the end of it all, you know, I mean, I needed to have the last word in what was going to happen with with the way in which I played. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I feel that I I learned a lot from, from him, but there were just certain things that I didn't agree with and I was not going to do, you know. And I think that was an incredible source of frustration for him. To be fair to him, it was with somebody like me who did not have very much tact, had a huge ego, and probably did not control my mouth as much as I should have. To be fair to myself... It was an atmosphere had been created where i was a black sheep in the department and i was example of the guy who did things wrong but could somehow play the guitar that was only by the time that i started really i decided to start practicing and i don't know when that happened may have been already my junior year i don't know when up until that time he's basically telling me you know you will amount to nothing you're not you know you're not going to get anywhere, you're, you're this, you're the other. I, I think in trying to help me, by the way, I think that's what he was trying to do.
0: Well, I can tell you from listening to this, he obviously cared a lot. Yeah. You don't get pissed off at people you don't care about. You just blow them off, number one. Number next, he went way out of his way to find you.
1: Also, to really put it in perspective, this is a man that was creating a school of playing. I probably also gave you the wrong impression in the sense that my first year, the I, I, I party, you know, whenever there was a party, I was there and everything, but there was another side of me that was really pretty miserable. That was pretty miserable. And just things came to, to a head at one point. I knew, or, or in my mind, I thought that the guitar had something to do with it, but I didn't know what it was. So I made a decision to try to start practicing again. I, I was being told so often that I would not amount to anything and this and the other, so... So I said, you know what, I, I'm going to start practice, and I'm going to give myself certain goals. And if that doesn't work, I'll hang it up. You know. So I did the he had a competition, concerto competition, I won that. You know. What did I, you play? The Giuliani concerto. Mm-hmm. I, I did some audition for the National Symphony, and they hired me to play. And I did the concerto skill, and I won it also. And then you know, from that point on, you know, just, I just kept going.
0: And how did Shearer feel about this when you were starting to have success?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think he was happy. I'm sure he was. Mm-hmm. I don't see why he shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think, you know.
0: Because maybe you you were also having success, but you were not following the... Yeah, but we have... Well, or you had there, gone there's, beyond there's, that.
1: There's, no, there's, a, there's a missing ingredient here, which is that on my last year in school, the contact between us was, was minimal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was not like we were seeing each other each, each week. or uh, So we, we had grown apart. Mm-hmm. As I said before, all, the, all these things just kind of... Came to to a head, and there was an incident one time. Actually, had to do with another student, a very talented student that had come into the school, it's David Tenenbaum. He came, and uh, and David was a, was a, was already, you know, a really great player, and you know he had been around. And to my shock, Shearer calls me into a lesson because David wasn't listening to him. And I told him, "Look, Mister Shearer, the way that I see it is this: you know, David is here; he's coming in; he's already a great player. You're asking him to change the technique to to some of the things that you're doing." You have to give him time to, to understand what you're saying because you know he's not going to change without you being able to demonstrate for him to see what it's you're talking about. <laughs> he has so much at stake here, and he said, "Well, you play the way I, the, the, the way I'm talking about." And I said, "Well, if I do, this is the first time that I hear it because up until the other, the other day I was a mm. blind sheep there." So the next day he met with me and he called me. He said, "I need to talk to you," and he just basically told me, "You know, I've had it. Don't come to the lessons. Don't come to the classes. I'll pass you. You know, just don't come." Wow. Yeah. I don't know where that happened, but it was towards the, the beginning of the last year. So even though these other things were happening with the concert, it's and all that. I mean, the thing is, when that happened, when he tells me, he's had it with me, you know, basically with me, I go to the dean's office and I quit school. And I say, you know, I've had it. You know, I, I, I want to be out of here. And the dean tells me, well, it's because of Mr. Sure. I say, it has nothing to do with Mr. Sure. You know, I've been wanting to leave for a long time. This is it. And then during, during that weekend, I talked to, uh, to friends and... You know, one of them, even David Starrow and he told me something I forget. He said, Manuel, if you ask me, you're an idiot. <laughs> he, said, he said, you had to remember that schools were made for students, not for teachers. And I said, you know, yeah. I went back and I told you, look, I'm back. And, but I told him, I understand why you're frustrated with me. I understand that. So I, I, I'm not angry at you. So when these things were happening, it comes to the school and all that, he was coming to those things, and he, he really seemed happy for me. I mean, I, And to this day, we have a good relationship. And the last time I was in North Carolina, I stayed with him, you know, (laughs) because I always did understand his point of view. And that's why I was never really angry at him. And I knew he was trying to help me. I knew that.
0: But also a lot of your technique didn't need huge amounts of rebuilding.
1: Well, see, this is what I owe him. I'll tell you what I owe him, roughly. When I came, I was basically a restroke player. Mm -hmm. All restroke. Basically whenever possible. Uh-huh. You put a red stroke. That's where I was coming from, and he t- taught me that th- the importance of having a good free stroke. But then, when I when I saw the free stroke, uh, the sound that people were getting around here, I said, "Ah, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get that sound." And I went home and I, and I found a different way to do it, uh-huh. a different angle to do it. And he sh- sure himself talks about that, that how I came back with this sound. The thing is that I found this sound that, that I thought was much better. But that would not have happened if I had not confronted him on the issue of the free stroke, and if I had not taught me the importance of, of doing that. So I mean, sometimes when I talk about about having started with him, I say I would still study with him, and I would still fight him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think because of that, this is why I think I owe him a lot because we had a lot of a lot of fights. But I think out of, out of that, a lot of good things came because he challenged me. I think also the, the thing that I owe him, he showed me. He introduced me, I should say, more to thinking about the guitar, how to think because he had, he had a very rational way of doing things, and up to that point, the things that I did was basically imitation of what I was saw without any reason, and now having to work with this man, I, I needed to make my points
0: mm-hmm.
1: or if I didn't want to do what he said, I, I needed to tell him something I own him that much, you know, and that to me was really the uh, what I got the most from him, this idea of thinking about uh, thinking about things. You
0: so now, chapter two of this rather extended and pretty interesting discussion is, you've been teaching for 20 years, almost maybe 30 years, uh, close to 30, it. Yeah, 30-some years. Yeah, 30-some 30 30 years. years. So now the shoe is on the other foot, yeah. and you have these people who come to you, who are, yeah. some are going to be very uh, uh, dominant themselves, some of them are going to be very submissive to you. Um, based on, on your own experiences, uh, what do you tell these people? What, what do you... If somebody comes to you, if Manuel came to you today, what would you say to him?
1: Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I um, hardly any of the students that I have are actually submissive mm-hmm. because I happen to be working w- w- with a group of extremely talented players. I can tell you people like, you know, like Franco Platino, Anna Vidovich, uh, Lucas you know, one Yameng, Sumeng. I mean, these are major international talents. The difference between... What may have been sure of myself or the normal teacher it's, it's an normally a, the student may be the vehicle for the teacher to make his or her place, you know, in, in, let's say in the concerts, you know, so on. That's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm telling them. basically. You know, the lucky thing that, that they have is there's no pressure in that sense. I have my career. Now, what I do with them is I share with them my experience. I try to accelerate for them the process of learning, you know, I can give them some information in ten minutes that it took me twenty years to figure out, and if they should listen to it, it should help them quite a bit. Now, that's a difficult thing that it's not as easy as it sounds because what happens is if I can rewind now the tape, is that these people coming in with huge egos, they're already great players, and I think mostly with respect for me, no, actually I shouldn't be modest. I mean with respect for me, but they also, in a way, they also fear losing their own personality. Mm-hmm. And I need to find a way to talk about things so, so that I don't try to absorb them. And I don't even want to do that. But on the other hand, I remember when I started teaching uh, Manhattan School of Music, and I had no idea what I was doing. I apologize to those who studied with me at the time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I remember talking to the dean of the school at one point, because I was trying to be Mr. Open-minded. I'm saying, well, no, look, I mean, I'm trying not to influence him too much. You can, I mean, I'm trying to bring out what's there, not to influence them. I said, yeah, 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 but you got to influence them. you got to tell them what you think. When that guy said that to me, actually, David Simon, who later became here the director of the School of the Arts in Baltimore, and he was the Dean of the School of Music. When David said that to me, yeah, of course. That's why they're coming to you. And then what I realized was, as I thought back in the teachers that I had, the ones that really had an impact on me is the ones that, that told me what they thought. And that's what I do with my students. You know, I mean, I, There's a fine line there of, of what is it that I like and what's right and what's wrong. That's a difficult one to manage, and, and I talk to them about that, and I tell them, you know, in this thing, I think is, this is black and white. I think this may be a matter of opinion. I'm just giving you my opinion. You know, you take it home, and you, and you think about it. But having said that, it really is a lot of fun. Sometimes it's extremely frustrating. Sometimes you, sometimes you see them sort of hurting themselves. One thing that has become so clear to me is all that it takes to become a concert player. It takes a lot of different things. Uh the most obvious thing is for some it just takes getting hit real hard and just getting up and going again. I know a couple of people that said, not for me. I don't want to get hit this hard. You know? I think depending on how it makes a career, but we're talking about a good career, an honest career, one that is based on the quality of the playing and not just on publicity or, or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know. I think there has to be a side of you that, that keeps improving what you're doing. To be extremely self critical. To think of interesting things to do. And even sometimes, for example, I can think of one case right now that so it's an extremely talented student. For this person, it's more hung up on the guitar world than he realizes. Mm. And some of the decisions are made on that. And I keep telling them, don't. Make your decisions on the highest ideals of music. I mean, don't get caught up and just see how fast, or loud you can play for other people. Because it's not interesting. Just not you know, maybe you can go one time and see see the player running over the fingerboard one time, and I would go see it just to see how fast and maybe another time and that 's it technique
0: is a means to an end it 's it 's crucial, but there 's nothing more boring than hearing somebody play scales for two hours in a concert you know there 's nothing uh...
1: yeah also also I mean sometimes we can have a uh, very narrow views of what technique is because sometimes in especially in the guitar world, people seem to think of technique as how fast one speed. Yeah, speed, speed and everything else speed. And, and, yeah. and that saying, like, the best car in the world is the fastest one. If you can make a performance, you know, like, seamless technically, tell him. I keep saying that to me, a great technique is invisible, you don't see it. Mm-hmm. I keep saying, and I believe that once you hear technique, once you become aware of technique, it mean something is wrong. I had the opportunity to play for Segovia one time. And Michael Lorimer, you know, mm-hmm. who was in New York, he said, Segovia said, you want to meet him? I said, well, of course, you know. So, you know, I mean, good old me, I mean, I, I arrived late.
0: You were late to see Segovia? I was late to see Segovia. What were you thinking?
1: Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so I got this there is and I'm late. And I, uh, well, it's more stupidity, <laughs> uh, No, and, and it was not an ego thing, it was just stupidity. Uh-huh. Stupidity. Okay. And of course, I didn't get a chance to warm up, so I didn't even play very well. So I played the prelude from the second loop Suite for him. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, yeah, I said, very nice. Your fingers are very docile. He said, "But you have to do more with it." This one I said, "You should not listen to critics or anything. You should just, you know, you should do more." I played the. Uh, I just made this arrangement of the Albanese Granados at the time, so I played the third Granados dance, and He goes, "Ah," he says, "Your fingers are very docile." He, <laughs> he said, and that's, that's like the nice arrangement. And then I play Sevilla, and I begin to play Sevilla, and he goes, "Too fast." And I said, "Well, look, I'm sorry, master. I didn't mean to. You know, it's not like I was trying to." Go too fast. Let's said, well, imagine if you had tried to go fast, you know. Anyway, what he said, he was very complimentary, you know. And But he also said something. He said, be careful not to become a victim of your technique. Mm. You know, that's something that I, I have seen this happen later on with some young students with lots of technique that that prowess that they have ends up controlling them. Forget you have this, this ability and just develop, become the best musician you have. You have both. You can't miss. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, the ego can be a very powerful thing. And some and, people and, just
0: aren't deep. They, some people do not have... Do you think everybody has music inside
1: them? I don't know what you mean. You mean... you? Uh... I, I mean,
0: there are some people whose playing doesn't sound like singing, has no vocal aspect to it, and will never sound like singing. And those are people who I think maybe don't have music in them, and other people
1: oh, I see have what music you, yeah, in them. Yeah, yeah, I see. I see what. Yeah, I think it's also the difference between being, being, let's say, cold musically, what we call, and just not being able to express what you feel, not being in touch mm. with it. And sometimes it's hard to tell. But anyway, I, I'm pretty confident that at least in some of the cases that I'm thinking of, it's a matter of thinking when I have this. This great equipment. And the fact of the matter is, when I think back, it's not necessarily the, the people with the, the the most technical facilities that have made the biggest careers, but often it's been the ones that are more interesting. You know?
0: The people who can move people. This is yeah, what it's about, but, no? Yeah.
1: Probably if we look at different players, we can probably see different reasons why they, they make careers. I mean, look, if you have... An ability that goes beyond what other people do, even if it's technical, that will attract attention, but that will not give you longevity in your career. I mean, it's something else that will keep that interesting, will keep it living, you know. I think there's a sustaining power, you know, it's not going to come up because they can move their fingers fast. That's not going to happen.
0: What sustains an artist, and what do you think is going to sustain you now? What are the things that are going to keep you interested in music for the next 25, 30 years? <laughs>
1: I don't expect to be playing in thirty years, <laughs> I, I, but uh, but you know. If I think balance,
0: mm-hmm.
1: balance in life, balance in life. I mean, when, when you think about it, to go around the world, you know, making music is not the worst way to spend one's life. You know, <laughs> uh, right now, I mean, I can think of a lot of things that I would still love to do. So if I'm able to do them, I mean, the interest will be there. So you still, you still love
0: us. You still have a, you still have a positive relationship with it.
1: When I was a kid, I adored it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the center of the universe. At one point, something did happen, and I no longer saw it that way. Now, I think I probably love it more than I ever have before. Since
0: the time when we recorded the discussion about teachers, uh, Aaron Shearer, a a teacher of yours, um, when you were at Peabody, has passed away finishing a long and successful life as really one of the most successful guitar mentors of uh, of his era. And I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts about him now.
1: Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it is a sad thing. And I can tell you the last experience that I had with him, which was not too long ago. It was uh, just a few months ago that I played a concert in North Carolina in the School of the Arts. It was in honor of uh, Mr. Sheer And um, a funny thing happened. I play my concert, and he begins to walk over to the stage and uh, he comes over so I went over to him and he said oh man well, he said, can you play like one of the old things you know like can you play recuerdos?" I said well Mr. Shearer I, I have to practice it I mean I can just not play recuerdos. I mean that's not that easy for me he said okay you know how about something like like Adolita can you play that I said well Mrs. Shear, I haven't played that in ages and then I said Mr. Shearer is this really important to you he said yeah okay let's do it <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went back and sat on the chair. I mean, I turned back to the public first. I went through it quickly to make sure I could remember the thing and I played it. <laughs> he wanted you to play it in public. In public, this, oh this is in the middle. This is this was the end of the concert. This is and this, so this was the last thing you know in, in the concert that we did. Yeah, I mean, as I get older, I can understand certain things that I couldn't before, and I could not understand him better. So yeah, I have been thinking. I have been thinking about him and what he's meant to me and what he's meant to the guitar. He, he was somebody who was totally dedicated not only was was he one of the uh, the most important teachers that guitar has ever had but he's also one of its most devoted students
0: why do you think he wanted those taraga pieces i don't know
1: I, I haven't thought about that it's a good question at the moment it seemed to me like a very honest reaction he just wanted to hear something that he loved if there was another motive, I have no idea.
0: Hmm. I think they're like pure guitar music. You know, I think they're perfect pieces for the guitar. They're miniatures. They're idiomatically yeah. ideal. And I think he just wanted to hear you play one of them, maybe, before he yeah. left
1: the world. Yeah. It's funny because a couple of friends recently have mentioned that to me. that They would like for me to play some of these things, some of the simpler and classic guitar pieces. And uh, maybe I should. Maybe I should do it.